So you and I have just read this essay called The Narcissist Society by Christopher Lash. And this was an essay that was published uh, in 1976. Um, it was published in the New York Review of Books. And it's an essay that I've read a few times in the past, but I keep coming back to because I think that it has um, just a lot of, you know, a, a lot of social relevance, I think is the right way to say it. Um, I think that it it really captures a lot of the attitudes that uh, not only were going on in the 70s, but that maybe started in the 70s, or at least really started to become uh, noteworthy in the 70s. And then and then I think we were still living in the seventies. Like it's still, like we're still like, they're, they're still, they're still present. And I think this essay really captures that. Um, what did, what did you think of this essay? I, um, not having read Lash before, he was a name that I knew, but had not actually read any of his work. So this was uh, a really nice first dive into him. And I really enjoyed it. I think I was a little thrown off by the book review section. Obviously, that was kind of the the structure that he was working on there was running through several different contemporary titles and using them as the lens. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, I agree. There is a lot of relevance. I don't know if we're still living in the 70s. I think we might be um, even, even less fortunate, you know, kind of the children of the 70s, uh, even if you and I were born in the 80s. But uh, the the relevance of it is undeniable here. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, maybe I should say a little bit about um, who Christopher Lash was. So Christopher Lash was a historian. Uh, he was uh, a professor at the University of Rochester. Um, he was a liberal. I think he, for uh, much of his career, he was on the left. Um, and I, and then in the 1970s, he began to change and sort of become a cultural critic, and he was very um, astute in his observations and, and, and pointed in his criticisms of the intellectual climate and the cultural climate of the 1970s. And I think he spent the rest of his life really um, being a critic of the kind of, you know, you can call it decadence, you can call it late stage liberalism, you can call it late stage capitalism, whatever you want to call it from, 19, from the 1970s until his death in 1994. Um, and he wrote this essay, and as you mentioned, it was a, a book review, so he's reviewing a number of books um, that encapsulate some of this um, some of this attitude that he was critiquing uh, in many ways. Um, uh, so, so it is a book review. In the new, this was an essay published in the New York Review of Books, which reviews books. So this was a book review, a series of book reviews um, uh, in one essay. Um, but he later expanded this into uh, into a a full book called the Narcissist Society, um, uh, which was that was three years later, and that was actually that was a very influential book. Uh, President Carter read it in uh, when it came out, and it really influenced um, Carter's famous Malaise speech, uh, yeah. in which he talked about American Malaise and the crisis of consumerism and this kind of spiritual emptiness. Uh, that was heavily influenced by Christopher Lash, so. Um, he's had, you know, a pretty lasting impact, I think, on certainly on that decade. And I, I think that um, he, you know, not only on that decade, but but also like he, he's really re uh, enjoying a kind of a, a kind of um, reappreciation, I think, uh, among certain people on the Internet. I, I don't know, like it's hard to say if they're like on the left or on the right, but like there is a kind of, I think, newfound appreciation for um for for or at least a new generation is coming to recognize Christopher Lash and uh, recognizing there's a kind of alienation and 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 emptiness in their lives and wondering like what have other people had to say about it and I think that is where Lash is um, that's yeah that is why he is relevant to uh, to, to people to to readers today um, but. So let, let, let's dive in. I mean, what what does this like? What was this essay all about? Like, what do you think? Like, to somebody who hasn't yet read it, uh, what what was what was his main point? Like, what's he what's going on in this essay? I think, in in a lot of ways, it would be uh, the the rise of the self help section in the bookstore um, that that he's documenting that people are shifting from finding value in other things in in larger pursuits 
to seeking something that is just focused on the self, on improvement and validation. And this is gradually in his time taking over society. And as, as I think we're both saying, has clearly finished the takeover by now, by 2022, uh, is, is just completely dominant. Um, so the, the notion that self-help and at one point he says that therapy is the new religion, um, which was something that resonated with me as I was thinking about, okay, so what have people turned to as secularism has sort of become the expectation? Uh, and it's, it's pretty clear that self-help, that therapy, that anything focused on making the individual happy in whatever system society has at that point is uh, is the way to go now. Yeah, that, so that's an interesting point. So he he does, yeah, I, I absolutely. I, I think that he he talks about this this idea that oh, therapy is this new religion, and it's funny because you know you hear a lot about like that phrase is the new religion, like the latest thing you know that that's become. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily like become a cliche yet, but but certainly something you if you know for those paying attention online to sort of cultural discourse, we hear a lot about wokeness and like how wokeness is the new yeah. religion, and I feel like you know, he's not really critiquing wokeness. Like Lash isn't necessarily a critic of wokeness necessarily, but it's like, this is definitely like the kind of, um, you know, intellectual uh, um, predecessor to, to wokeness. It's like, it's it's not unrelated, you know, it's like this kind of, kind of, um, there's clearly a link between, you know, these left-wing attitudes that we call wokeness and this kind of like therapy culture. Like they're not like they're, you know, they, they have a diff they have a slightly different flavor, but but like clear clear relationship. Maybe we can explore that a little more. But I did want to say, um, so it, it's interesting because he doesn't come out and say uh, that woke uh, that, that not wokeness that um, the therapy like he he has he says it's it, in many ways it's like a, it's superficially like yeah. a religion, right? It's not exactly like a religion, and in particular, he he seems to think that one of the core tenets of a religion is that it ties like it ties you to a, a meaning outside the self and like sort of ties you to like both past and future. Like you have some sense of, you know, like where, you know, some sort of founding myth or some sort of founding idea or, you know, who you are as a religious people. And then there's some sort of greater golden age in the future. And the current, you know, this therapy religion that he's critiquing in the 1970s is different in a way because there is no future. There's no golden future. It's just the self. It's just, you know, it's just this turning inward. It's, um, um, you know, it's this um, giving up on, on any of the sort of traditional sources of meaning. So I thought that was a very, that was a very interesting thing to say. So it's, it's like, yes, there is a sort of religion, but it's, it's, he actually even, I think he uses the word anti-religion in yeah. the essay. He's like, this is like an anti-religion. Like it doesn't give you, it doesn't get, take you anywhere. So. Um, yeah. And it's taking, <clears throat> maybe I should have been more precise. It's taking the place of religion. Yeah. It's not necessarily fulfilling the functions that religion had, but it has that same, you know, there, there is the shrine. Uh, there is, there, there are the gurus who offer you guidance. There are the, the pieces of wisdom that are repeated over and over again as mantras. There's the routine to it. Um, and so, yeah, in all the superficial features, it looks like a religion, but it's missing that key content, which is anything beyond the present moment and the self. Um, yeah. and that's, so, so here's a question. Do you, do you think that the like typical person, you know, let's say in the seventies or even today, like, do you think that this has really penetrated them? I mean, are we just talking about sort of like, oh, it's easy to critique this when you live in San Francisco or maybe Vermont. And, you know, you have these sort of left-wing hippie dippy people who, you know, are really into alternative medicine and they're into Eastern therapies and all of that. But do you think this has like a sort of greater, um, like, do you think this has caught on in a kind of greater, a greater sort of way? So are you asking specifically about the right? Basically, does the, does the right? Well, no, no, no. I, I mean, like, like, do you think that, um, not necessarily in a political sense, but I, I, let me answer my own question first. Like, I would say, yes, I think that the, the typical 
like sort of young person, a typical millennial today is very much like they have grown up in this kind of therapy culture. They have grown up in a kind of you do you, you know, if it feels good, you should do it, you know, seek pleasure, avoid pain um, kind of kind of way. I think that they there is very little um, like thought for, you know, on the part of most most millennials and Gen Z. Um, of like, well, how, how are we connected to previous generations of Americans? And like, what, like, what is this bright new future? I, I think that there is really, there is, there is no, it seems to me, greater like sense of, of anything. Like there is no, like, you know, you know, we are building, we want to build this kind of society and this is what we want to do. Like that, that seems to be absent. Like we don't want, you know, a shining city on a hill. We don't want, like, we have no real vision of like what, what the future could be if we wanted to bring it about. It's simply this, like, well, I want to do this. And like, it feels good when I do this. So I'm going to do that. And I'm exploring, you know, you know, whatever it may be. I'm getting really into cooking. I'm getting really into, you know, psychedelics. I'm getting really into, you know, and I say this as a runner, as someone who loves running, I'm getting really into <laughs> running. Like we turn yeah. to these like hobbies as, as our sort of source of meaning, but the sort of ties to, previous generation seems to be gone. And yeah. And I, I wonder what, do you agree with that? Yes. Yeah. And I think that we can see it even on the level of how people think, um, the, the degree to which in, uh, a God awful Facebook argument, everyone will jump on Google, look up the exact statistic that speaks to what my point is. And mm-hmm. that's all I'm going to talk about. I'm going to focus on this in isolation. And so it's not really about, you know, discourse, uh, which the internet has facilitated more than anything uh, has ever managed to do in human history. And it's been reduced to simply trying to prove my point. People aren't really seeking to learn. They're not seeking to understand the situation better. Yeah. Just to demonstrate, oh no, I have like what I say has validity and they're, they're wrapping their self-worth up in it to the point that, you know, you can't be friends with someone who disagrees with you. Um, that that's, that's an existential threat to your self-image and happiness. Um, and mm. that I think, goes, uh, goes across the entire social spectrum. Um, so, and yeah, you think would, that, so in other words, like that's, that's the turning inward, like in some sense that, that, that like, there's this kind of like, everything is reflected through this kind of, kind of em- like emotional, personal, like lens. Yes. Yeah. Does this validate me or is this a threat to me and to what I believe? And yeah. I'm going to respond to it accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, yeah, I, I've certainly noticed that in my, uh, yeah, in my engagement with people sure. on the internet, there's, there is a kind of hyper, um, I don't know, hypersensitivity might be the wrong word. Um, but there is a kind of, uh, like, like, yeah, like a, like a sort of, less about discourse and more about like and less about discourse in the sense of exploring ideas and more about like i want to score points i want to validate you know my worldview um and i'm guilty of yeah. that i've definitely fallen into that at different moments and then looked back and said yeah i was totally writing in defensive anger right there that was that was stupid i still believe what i said but yeah the way that i was approaching this was very self-centered uh it wasn't about actually discussing the issue. It wasn't about convincing anybody. It was simply about proving myself about putting, you know, making sure that I am the, the social discursive version of me is fully barricaded and walled up and ready to withstand any assault. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm staring at the first uh, page of, of the, of the essay. And in the second paragraph, um, he, Lash says, having no hope of improving their lives in any of the ways that matter, people have convinced themselves that what matters is psychic self-improvement. And then he goes on to list a number of things. Um, uh, well, I can read that. Getting in touch with their feelings, eating health food, taking lessons in ballet or belly dancing, immersing themselves in the wisdom of the East, jogging, learning how to relate in quotes, overcoming the quote, fear of pleasure. And what I underlined was in any of the ways that matter, like what, what does that mean when he says like, you know, there is, 
there is no hope of improving their lives in any of the ways that matter. Like what, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, what yeah. to Lash no, that, or to you or to anybody, that is a difficult thing to parse. What counts as mattering. And yeah. uh, there's, I'm, I'm reminded at this point of, uh, of the big Lebowski. Uh, well, that's just like your opinion, man. Yeah. The, the idea that these things don't matter and that something else does. And he seems to be taking kind of as given what matters. Uh, there's, there's an unspoken sense that, some higher calling, which religion certainly fulfills in his book. And I imagine other issues like nationalism, like raising family, uh, things that tend to get ascribed to more traditional conservative values. Um, but in large measure, because, you know, you have to have something to conserve to be a conservative. So there has to be a connection to the past and a desire to keep something going into the future. Uh, somebody who's who's looking to reform, who's looking to change everything, can't necessarily have as secure a sense of either past or future because one you're pushing back against and the other you're trying to reshape. So I think that the, the things he's taking as what matter, and I was fascinated when you described him as having been a liberal uh, prior to this, because this this seems like a very, in the most literal sense of the word, conservative uh, standpoint, that what matters has to be something beyond the moment. Yeah, so that's an interesting point, because I think that, you know, tying in sort of liberal and conservative, I think that, like, there was a, you know, uh, like, when you sort of look back to like, sort of what my, what is now called classical liberalism, you know, this kind of at least to us, um, not necessarily the liberalism of like John Stuart Mill, but even as recently as the 1960s, I think there was still this kind of like belief that like even among liberals, like they were, you know, proud to be American. Like they have this, they, they saw themselves in a kind of continuity with previous generations of Americans. So I, I feel like you, you can be kind of conservative for a liberal and, you know, you can still believe in this kind of national tradition. Um, and, you know, it's funny that now being liberal, um, that, that term is so confusing, by the way. It's like, yeah, no, it's, it's like, and it, progressive has sort of helped, but also yeah. created its own quagmire there as, right. as a different term. Um, but at least there's some distinction now because liberal seems to be now more in the political middle on some things, but it's still, it's still whatever yeah. wants it to mean. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that Lash very much, uh, he doesn't, I guess he doesn't come out necessarily and say it, but I, I think that he, like, just just like the first sentence of the essay, it is no secret that Americans have lost faith in politics. Like, he's already speaking in terms of, like, uh, in terms of a nation. He's speaking in terms of the American people um, yeah. as a people. And, you know, that that seems to me like, like that, that to, to a modern ear, that sounds conservative, but I, I guess what I, I guess what I'm thinking is like, you could still be liberal in 1976 and sort of use these terms, you know, and, and still yeah. like, you know, like, like, I, I don't know, like, I, I don't know what Nash's, uh, not Nash, Lash's opinions on um, uh, mass immigration were, like, I don't know if he would have yeah. been for it, like, you know, in the sense of like, you know, that's, there's a proud American tradition of, Im of immigration, or if he would have said, no, this is like, you know, like this really threatens our sense of who we are as, national you know, identity. like as, as a national identity, I don't know. But it seems to me that like, you know, he, he was also, he was writing at a time when um, I guess uh, the, the uh, origin quotas, the national origin quotas had been repealed only some 11 years prior in 1965. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, so, you know, I feel like America was basically at its, at its most sort of demographically stable in that sort of middle chunk of the 20th century. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think like the sort of battles that we are fighting now over like, uh, or at least the conversation now about sort of mass immigration and national identity and demographics and demographic change that hadn't quite come to the, the fore yet. Um, but Although you're um, to sort of the I'm a citizen of the world notion. Yeah, that uh, is definitely a key tenet yeah, of modern bit. of modern progressivism, if you want to call it that. Is this kind yeah. of is this kind of um, move away moving away from like these sort of national categories and, and embracing this kind of like international 
outlook. Like you're not rooted in any tradition. You can kind of pick and choose. And this is really where it gets into the kind of the, the personal personal therapy sense. You can choose what what your national identity is. You can choose your uh, you know, what your, where your loyalties are. You have no, you have no unchosen obligations, you know, you can, you can gender, like, you can choose your race. You can yeah. choose any number. I don't know. Are we at, you can choose your race yet. I'm actually not sure that, uh, that we're I getting mean, close to it. That's the, that's it, the, that's the next, the next battle. Yeah, be, no, yeah. that's, that's one that I know people have pointed to as, wait a second, if you can choose gender, why can't you identify? Sure. I think that, yeah, there was, um, I, I think a, a philosophy professor who basically wrote that article, and she herself, I, I believe, was very, uh, uh, very much on the left, and was was canceled for it, like yes. for like so it was like, so um, uh, and that, but but yeah, like but I think we're I think we're putting our finger in the right place, which is that there's there is this attitude of I can choose everything, every aspect of my life down to, like down to my gender, down to you know like you know, down to everything. Like I can choose like what, what national tradition I want to be a part of. I can just pick a different religion, you know, willy nilly, uh, you know, I can, you know, establish I, I, citizenship wherever. Yeah, I can establish citizenship somewhere else. And, um, you know, it, yeah. So I, I, whether, you know, whether or not, you know, like our listeners agree or disagree, uh, you know, with, that position, I I would say that that seems to be the the kind of contemporary attitude, one of the contemporary attitudes, and maybe it has its origins in the seventies, but probably it goes back much further. I, I'm sure Lash would say it goes back much yeah. further. Um, I mean, the discussion um, of becoming mainstream and becoming one of the major points of contention politically at this point is something new, uh, because there are, I'm sure have always been people who felt that they identified differently than how they were born in any number of senses, but that we are so tuned into that right now. And that the effort with the exception of race, which is a confusing one for me, uh, but with that exception, the effort is to validate whatever change you want to make, uh, whatever you want to see yourself as being, you choose it, you become that and good for you. It doesn't matter how or why, what matters is that you do you, that you become and identify as what you think you are. Um, and that's, that that is presented as an option, that there's obviously great pushback against it. But I doubt that there was anything remotely like that prior to the last 50 years. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I have to imagine that, yeah, previous generations like didn't, didn't think like, you know, there was always this sense of I can be whatever I want to be this kind of American dream thing, but it was still like constrained to a certain extent by like, well, we assume that like you still like want to be American, you know, like you're not like one minute you're in America, the next minute you're in Dubai, you know, like it's, it's not exactly. Um, and I think it's, you can become whatever you want to become. Yeah. There's, there's a sense that, you know, okay, here is where I am now and there's no changing that like the the demographics and the identifying characteristics of who and what and where I am right now are immutable. I can move forward and change something about that. And so that seems to be the American dream idea of rising to whatever, and for that primarily it was socioeconomic class. Um, but the notion that you can change the now that you can, in fact, reverse the past and say, well, I never was this other thing. That's it's a very good point. Yeah. Is that, do you think that's what people do now? They're like, well, like, yeah, I, I think it actually gets filtered through the lens of consent. So it's like, well, I didn't consent yeah. to being American, you know? So like, maybe I'm not real. like, like, I, you know, I just, I was born in this country, like, you know, but like, that's kind of it. I don't owe anything to, to anybody, you know, like, it's yeah. just an accident. Nobody um, asked me where I yeah. wanted to be born and what I wanted to look like and right. what body I would have. Yeah, any of that. Right. Um, and so it does seem like there, there, like there is, like I think a kind of growing, uh, like awareness of this at least in certain like online circles. It seems like um, it's not like the criticism that we're raising of this kind of 
this ideology that doesn't really have a name, like the, Lash calls it the consciousness movement. I mean, that was in the 70s. I don't know what you want to call it now. It's not exactly wokeness. Wokeness is more like it, I feel like a sort of has too much sociology um, yeah. jargon, but but the kind of just like default view of like everything, you know, this kind of narcissism, this is narcissism is maybe the word. Um, it seems like there is some growing, some growing uh, pushback. Um, there is, um, like, especially I think for, for young women, there seems to be a, a kind of emerging realization that, um, that this kind of, uh, you know, the, the kind of, this kind of like choose your own adventure, like kind of stops when you, you know, you have to have children, you have to kind of reach a point where you're going to decide to have children or not have children. You know, that is, that is not something that you get to choose, you know, your entire, uh, entire life, uh, fortunately or unfortunately. Um, and I think they, they're kind of, you know, there seems to be this, this kind of reckoning with that, at least among people, I think our age, like it's like, um, yeah. And I think that, know, that depends on valuing or at least acknowledging that there is value to the notion of uh, having children biologically, uh, of, of doing so uh, what, what we might call the old fashioned way, um, rather than going through adoption, going through surrogacy, going through in vitro, any number of other options that technology and science uh, and society are making more available. Uh, because that's one of the things that as a teacher, I encounter students talking about, well, I can have children any number of ways looking ahead at their future when they're talking about their own families and, and notions of what they want with their lives. Um, that biological reproduction um, doesn't have to be the limit of having children. But there's still, I agree, a sense uh, remaining. And I don't know if it's if it's generational and this is one of those things that's going to gradually work itself out uh, and and fade away in the same way that lots of other preferences and prejudices have. Uh, but as long as there is a bias toward uh, saying, you know, that my child is something that shares my genes uh, and that came from my body, mm. as long as that still has some sort of value in people's eyes, then yeah, there's going to have to be that reckoning. But if that disappears, then I don't know where it goes. Yeah, I don't, I don't know either. I'm, I'm sure that like millions of people who've adopted children might, might push back against that, you know? Yeah. Um, um, and rightfully so. Um, but there's, there's also a, a very legitimate experience to going through pregnancy and birth uh, that if you don't go through it, I don't know that you can understand it. And so I certainly don't. I, I watched my wife do this fairly recently and I'm sitting there most of the time just looking back in amazement going, how can you be just okay with the notion that your whole body is transforming and sort of becoming something else? And then it's going to gradually return to what it had been. But now with this new component of a, another creature who is physically dependent on you in so many ways um that 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 whole experience is one that necessarily does require this biological process uh the the old-fashioned one yeah yeah i think like that yeah that's like i i, I guess i mentioned this because it's like it seems like a hard kind of a hard reality is like you know you can kind of live your life like saying well i get to choose everything i get to i get to you know make like I can do whatever I want to do, but like the sort of the, the making, uh, you know, like having a family, starting a family is, um, is something that is, you know, that is like, you know, from, I think for a lot of people, these are, you know, having biological children is something that you have to kind of make a hard choice about. Um, and it seems like increasingly like people, people don't, I mean, I would put myself in this category. Like, I mean, I'm unmarried and I don't have children, um, perhaps someday. Um, but, um, it seems like more and more people are just kind of punting on that. Um, or... Oh yeah, statistics on that are insane. The, the yeah, degree. yeah, right. Uh, yeah, no, there's uh, fertility there are... is collapsing. You know, like a piano falling out of a window. Um, uh, so, 
you know, um, but that's not that's also not unique to the United States. I, that that seems to be happening worldwide. I mean, that seems to be a larger a larger trend. Um, uh, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know what uh, Lash if Lash uh, ever comments. Certainly in this essay, he doesn't comment on fertility as such. He talks about a sort of um, the the I don't know if he says the breakdown of the family, but he talks about how you know, the, the family, like the, the, the sort of the, the dysfunction of the family, sort of di- rise in like dysfunctional uh, families. And um, in particular, you know, something that stood out was that he says that, you know, these these problems and the sort of um, the, the rise of the expert class that that has come to sort of fix them, they're not just like purely like internal problems. They are, they're a reflection of larger social problems. Um, yeah. And I'm trying yeah, to remember he, exactly what he says. Maybe, yeah, go ahead. He mentions the uh, Bertrand Russell's prediction of uh, that the state takes on too many parental responsibilities and that sort of empties out personal private light, life of meaning. Mm. Um, I was thinking about the the family dynamic and the breakdown of the family. You know, if you if you start getting rid of the the biological nuclear family, where does all that lovely Freudian Oedipal rage go? Well, obviously it goes against the state, uh, which is the one that's providing for you, the one that is educating and raising. Um, and that's, I think a lot of what we're seeing is is sort of that familiar therapy-driven rage against the way that the family limited and caused trauma early in a child's life. But now it's, directed at the entire society that okay mm. this is this is that horrible father uh who raised me with these awful values um but also that i want to be the one in charge i want to supplant that father and be the one steering the ship yeah did you find it at all like funny i i thought it was a little it was a little strange that that um, he's critiquing therapy culture, but he draws a lot on like Freudian like analysis and like yeah. and like and and really borrows from psychology quite a bit. And I so he doesn't like dismiss psychology. He's dismissing the kind of like like therapy wisdom and the rise of like the expert class who knows you know there's an expert to teach you how to raise you know how to deal with your baby there's an expert to kind of you know to educate your children you know in this and that way and to sort of convince you that you as a parent don't really know what you're doing and that like if you you know if you if you don't let the experts sort of take over then you're going to be doing real harm to your to your child um, but nevertheless, he he does seem to be like to allow himself to be influenced by by Freud. He seems like, you know, that that he seems to have respect for. I thought that was a a bit of an odd juxtaposition, personally. Yes, in, in like down to the premise of narcissism, he borrows his definition of narcissism not from any mythological reference, but from psychiatric practice. And so I was I I also was wondering, okay, how much are you? rejecting the therapist and how much are you co-opting the terms and using them yourself? Uh, and if you are, are you really presenting a solution or are you just creating sort of another loop within this endless self-examination? Is is calling out self-examination yet another form of it? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I'm not sure. I guess this also raises the question like what what did like what what do we think that Lash got right and what did he get wrong about like reading this essay now? What do you think he like what do you think he got right and yeah, and what do you think he got wrong? Um, a lot of the particulars, that was part of what I, I laughed a lot reading this. Uh the sentence that you picked early, early on. Uh so many of those remain the fads, the the trends that we're still following. Um, the ballet, belly dancing, wisdom of the east, jogging overcoming fear of pleasure, health food, like all of that continues to be very much relevant, very much what most Americans are concerned with in some way, either in pursuing it or deliberately avoiding it and rejecting it. Um, So yeah, many, many of the particulars I think he nailed. Um, I'm trying to remember, there was one that jumped out as not quite fitting what we've what we've seen in the 50 years since or almost 50 years um 
from the, the from the, the the litany of of things the uh, the not from uh, the particulars, but just from uh from the way that he watched things playing out uh the way that he predicted where it was headed uh, yeah i'm not uh, i don't recall exactly which one uh, uh didn't exactly pan out i'm not sure how many predictions necessarily he makes but um i guess to answer my own question on what did nash uh I keep calling him nash lash what did lash get right um uh he has this passage where um uh he, he I, I think he answers his question of like what what does it mean like what does it mean to like uh you know to to you know what what does it mean to matter right like what are the ways of life that matter he says uh, pretty early on he says that even when they speak of the need for meaning and love, therapists define love and meaning simply as the fulfillment of the patient's emotional requirements. It hardly occurs to them, nor is there any reason why it should, given the nature of the therapeutic enterprise, to encourage the subject to subordinate his needs and interests to those of others, to someone or some cause or tradition outside himself. Love as self-sacrifice or self-abasement, meaning as submission to a higher loyalty. These sublimations strike the therapeutic sensibility as intolerably, intolerably oppressive and offensive to common sense. Um, so yeah, I think that that, that is right. I think that that is, and that has, I think, stood the test of time, you know, until the present, which is that this idea that we want to, um, that people have little inclination or maybe even little, uh, possibility of committing themselves to some cause or tradition outside themselves. Um, that, that seems very relevant, um, to today. I mean, I think that, um, you know that that might be changing. I I think that um, you know I've seen I've seen a, you know uh, it's just here in San Francisco. There's a pretty big like housing advocacy group called Yimby, um, which is Yes in My Backyard, yeah. a sort of parody of No in My Backyard. Um, and I don't know if that provides meaning uh, in the in the Lashian sense, but um, you know, it's something that people like, people do want to have a sort of like a beautiful city. We want to have a city with more housing in it. So that's, you know, some, some examples. Uh, um, but nevertheless, I, I think that there is some, um, I think is basically right that, that like the sort of like larger, larger tradition or larger cause outside the self is sorely, uh, sorely lacking. Um, as far as what Lash got wrong, um, yeah, the the uh, you know we we touched on it earlier, but the like the the kind of the Freudian psychoanalysis stuff seemed a bit like that seemed a bit dated to me. Like that was like okay, this is like you know that this really comes back. All his talking of like uh, how how like the you know the the um, you know the the naughty child is angry at his at his uh, mother for not, you know, receiving sufficient love because she is herself caught up in this sort of, you know, feeling of powerlessness and uh, and her own sort of narcissism. And that gets reflected. That seemed very strange. Like that, like to me, like I, I think today um, there's much more of an emphasis on like, you know, that like that we, we like that personality uh, types aren't aren't purely just like your relationship with your parents. Like that's an important component, but that's not the only thing that, you know, that determines, you know, it's like, oh, it's all about it's all about the first like five years of life and your upbringing and all of that. That seemed very dated. And that seemed very much from the 70s. So um, I don't know that, that Lash got everything right. I think that was that was a bit of miss to me, but that's what yeah. I think. No, I, I agree. The anytime I listen to Freudian or read Freudian analysis, um, I'm struck at struck by how much it feels a lot like reading tarot cards um, <laughs> in that if you bend everything just right, you can definitely see what that is talking about. But the terms are so broad, uh, you know, anything can become a conflict, anything can become a source of trauma early on, that you can make just about anything fit the narrative that you're trying to have there. Um, the part that I was questioning. I, I think I found it. This is the second to last paragraph, actually, um, where he's talking about weakening social ties. And he says that a warlike society tends to produce men and women who are at heart antisocial. It should therefore not surprise us to find that the narcissist, although he conforms to social norms for fear of external retribution, often thinks of himself as an outlaw and sees others in the same way as basically dishonest and unreliable 
or only reliable because of external pressures. And uh, he's, he's borrowing from Kernberg, one of, the, one of the folks that he reviews here. And that struck me as almost spot on, um, but I'm wondering what a warlike society is. Yeah, um, he kept using that it, phrase. I had that exact same question. I was like, what's he mean yeah. by a warlike like society? He quotes, I think it's Hobbes who said, who originated the phrase, a war of all against all. Yes. Um, yeah. And the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, that famous great line. Um, and I think in 1976, we may still have been a warlike society, but I, I really have to question if the last... 40 some years have maintained that or if we have gone completely in a different direction uh than that externally conquering society that uses traditional means of force um and there's so, there's so, so you much- interpret it literally yeah. like he means a, a society that is literally engaged in warfare that is committed to warfare and he's talking about social warfare a lot yeah. um and I think that we see still, but <sighs> describing describing the society of 2022 as warlike is a difficult one for me. It it feels just it, it feels like that's not the word, not the not the right set of terms to use. I get what it's going for, but it's not quite where we have landed. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if he means like this is where Lash could possibly be really much, you know, like like this is where he sounds like a leftist is like he could be saying that, you know, that society um, has become just like excessively capitalistic in the sense of like we're all just in it for ourselves and that like there is this like everything has become a meritocracy, everything has become a fight, everything is like ladder climbing and just like ruthless self-promotion. In that sense, it could be warlike and he's sort of critiquing the kind of, you know, even, yeah, I, I don't know that he's necessarily advocating for this. I don't know how he felt about this sort of the welfare state. He might be very against it, but, but through a certain lens, he could be saying like, oh, like there seems to be no safety net in, you know, anymore. And he actually wrote it, he wrote a book, uh, I think it was after he wrote this essay called uh, Haven in a Heartless World. And it was a history of the American family. Hmm. Um, and I think he was talking about the, I'm sure it was after this essay. I think it was probably like at least a decade later. Um, and I haven't read it, but uh, but my understanding is that it's about basically how, how, how the family was like, in particular, like um, from uh, te- technological forces was being really like driven a- apart. Like the sort of great, the great American family with lots of children and a sort of multi-generation, uh, multi-generational outlook. Like that was really, um, that's really that had really started to disappear. I, I think that's the the basic synopsis. I'm not. I, I need to read the book, <laughs> but um, but I could see I could see I could see his his understanding of warlike having to do with the fact that this kind of excessive individualism um, resulting from you know the sort of diminishing American family. Um, but he doesn't he doesn't ever come out and say what he means by warlike. And I also had that question of like, what does he mean a warlike society? That's that's open to a bit of interpretation, I think. Um, but I also I sort of want to end on a on a sort of Tyler Cowen, you know, and Tyler Cowen's an economist I, I like a lot who reminds us that that like in many ways we are not like the 1970s. You know, if you look sort of at, you know, we've been talking in sort of cultural and psychological terms, but just materially, we are much better. We are like, you know, there was um well, I was going to say that uh, they were not, you know, we did, we don't have the the inflation and the stagflation that they were living through. But unfortunately, we recorded the podcast a few weeks too late, and we do have a bit of yeah. the inflation. Um, so I spoke too soon. But um, uh, you know, I, I think that we have a great deal of material comfort that that they did not have in the 1970s. We have, um, you know, as much as we we maybe lament the loss of traditional sources of uh, of meaning in our lives, we have a great deal of liberty. And, you know, I, how much of that would I want to trade is a question that I really ask myself. Like, you know, it's like, would I want to live in a world in which like I had fewer options, but like the path ahead would be much clearer. You know, I wouldn't be waking up every morning and being like, what am I doing with my life, you know, for the rest of it? Um, I, I, you know, 
I don't know. I don't know how much I'd be willing to trade. Like I, I'm not necessarily envious of the kind of 1950s existence that maybe Lash, uh, you know, wants to go back to. Perhaps I'm not, I'm not entirely sure if he does or not. But um, yeah, I mean, probably he would have critiques of the 1950s family as well. If I kept reading, uh, if I read more more than one essay of his. Um, but but I but I but I want to emphasize like you know because I'm sure that anyone who listens to this will be like come on guys like do you really like think that uh, like it's no better like life today is no better than the 70s like of course it was you know in many ways we are so much better I mean we uh, even for all the feelings of alienation like we have a lot of material comfort we have a lot of career possibilities we have a great deal a tremendous deal of 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 liberty in in the negative sense uh, that is freedom from you know, these external forces that we don't want to, to deal with. And it can't be all bad necessarily, right? <laughs> um, I, I will go ahead and push back on that a little bit and say that a lot of the liberties that you're talking about are um, perhaps mirages that, that we have the idea, the image of freedom from and freedom to. Uh, but when you look at the realistic paths that are available it remains pretty limited you know we have we have a lot of theoretical liberty um that our our material good has come at the expense of a lot of and i don't know if this is narcissistic uh but a lot of the self's ability to provide for mm-hmm. its own needs that we are much much more dependent on mm-hmm a social system that sometimes we resent, um, you know, looking at the way that our society handled, uh, the initial onset of the COVID-19 pandemic and said, okay, well, everyone's going home. And if you can't work from home, go on unemployment and the government will just pay you and we'll actually throw in tons more money. Uh, we'll, we'll pay more than what you would have been getting. And that's going to be what you subsist on. And so that is a lot of material comfort, a lot of luxury and things that could not possibly have been available previously. But at the same time, you've traded any any sense that you are the person who is earning it, mm. uh, unless you you really have managed to intuit the entire system of paying unemployment taxes from your previous paychecks into a system along with an entire society uh, so that there is insurance for when you're facing this type of crisis, uh, which doesn't seem like something that you can have internalized very well. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe another way of saying that would be like you, we have a lot more freedom to be con- like a lot more leeway as consumers, but we've, we've greatly diminished as producers. Like we, we have like, you know, we have all of Amazon to consume, but it's like, um, you know, and Netflix to binge on and, you know, and, and so on, but it's like, what are we producing anymore? Like, and there is a kind of powerlessness in, in the technological sense of like, you know, like you try to work on your car these days and it's like, good luck. There's so much electronics in there that you, it's like very hard to, to begin. And if you have an, if you have an electric car, if you have a Tesla, you can't do anything on that thing. Yeah. You know, you like, it's like, you don't pop open the hood and tinker with the engine. Like there's no engine to be tinkered with. Um, you know, so yeah, absolutely. Um, along with that, also that we don't uh, we don't produce good things any longer. That everything has built-in obsolescence. Um, you know, the the we they don't make them like they used to. Uh, line that most of the great technology we have has to be replaced much more frequently than the lower grade technology that was available fifty years ago. Yeah. Man, we are sounding very nostalgic. We are like, we're this very pessimistic and nostalgic podcast. I mean, I still think there's, 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 yeah, a lot to recommend the modern world. I mean, I think that the pro, I think we, we need new ways of discussing these problems. And that's kind of what I want this podcast to, to be about in many ways. I, I think that I, I want to be able to discuss sort of larger social forces. 
Um, but I don't want us to just like like wallow in kind of yeah, we're not here to just backward looking, <laughs> you know, like oh, life was so much better in the seventies. I mean, let's be honest. If we went back then, or or the sixties, or the fifties, you know, or the you know the nineteen the nineteenth century, uh, I think like the food would have sucked. Let's be honest, the food was probably yes. terrible. You know, like you know. Um, no, and I think that's uh, there. There are a lot of as you mentioned, consumer goods that we are we are much much richer in uh than we could possibly have been and i think the other thing is awareness beyond uh ourselves beyond between what we come in immediate face-to-face contact with and the broadest global narrative um everything that is at some remove from us between those there's so much more awareness of that than there could have been 50 years ago and I think even like, 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 like problems that are happening in Asia or in Africa or something like that, or, or, what or specifically even, mean? you know, between Vermont and California problems in Oklahoma, mm. uh, that, that it doesn't take a full scale natural disaster or a riot or something that makes national headlines for us to be aware of what's going on at different levels of the society that we are closest to as well as what's going on on other continents in other societies that there's there's so much more awareness of that and interest in that and i think that's Do, one place so, that we've so, so maybe this would be a pushback against lash and we can we can end it after this thought but um uh do you think that the world has become more empathetic do you think that this is a more empathetic place <sighs> that's a tough one i think we would need to define empathetic carefully um if it depends on whether the person is like me um if if empathy is only for those with whom i see something in common with myself then yes we've become a much more empathetic society if it's extending to people who are unlike me i don't think there's been much change really yeah like you like like i mean but thinking about in terms of like you know like um you know we're talking about sort of liberty, we, we would definitely be remiss if we, you know, didn't mention that there's been huge increase in, in, um, in liberty, especially for women, especially for ethnic minorities, especially for gays. Um, uh, you know, so I, I don't know. I think that there, there is a, there's a great deal of more empathy for people who are unlike us. Um, I think that maybe what, what is missing is that, empathy needs to be like like it needs to be there needs to be more than just feelings right like it needs to be more than just like like i empathize with you like you know i feel your feelings there need to be there needs to be a sort of a vision of something greater than just than just emotion um so i would say that we have become more empathetic that would be my my approach my 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 conclusion is that yes i would say we've become more empathetic uh, even to people who are unlike us but um, as far as as proposing like real solutions or having a sort of larger um, picture than just like yes, like I feel your pain. It's like that's where it ends. It's like okay, I feel your pain, and then, but like the you know better than feeling your pain would be like let's let's figure out how to like relieve this. You know, like let's let's actually do something with it and and build something better. So um, so yeah, maybe maybe we'll end it there, um, and hopefully there will be more more discussions where we can we explore further yeah thanks for doing this thanks for setting it up this is a good good conversation yeah i have no idea where this is going so to our listeners um (laughs) thanks for thanks for toughing it out with us we'll see what happens